Side Hustle Show 231, Affiliate Marketing the Authority Hacker Way. What's up, what's up? Nick Lober here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because building assets is fun. Today's show is about building a very specific type of asset, a website that's monetized, at least in the beginning, with affiliate marketing. So affiliate marketing, to give a quick definition, is basically helping other companies sell their products or services online and then earning a commission for your referral. I've been an affiliate for dozens of companies since 2004, including Zappos and Amazon and Udemy and Bluehost and lots more. It's really become one of my primary income streams over that time. But despite that, I haven't done a great job covering affiliate marketing on the show or in the blog archives. And I know because more content on the topic was a common request in my recent member survey. But when I got those survey results back, I knew immediately who I was going to reach out to. Perrin Carroll is one of my favorite writers on site building, SEO, and monetization strategy. He's a former cubicle slave, his words, but he built himself a way out. One of his recent projects, a dog website called herepup.com, which you'll hear us reference in the call, went from a valuation of zero to $200,000 in 20 months. Today, Perrin's a full-time entrepreneur and the senior editor over at authorityhacker.com, flat out one of the best resources you'll find online for this stuff. Stay tuned to hear Perrin's niche selection and keyword research process, how he structures his sites for maximum Google love, and the initial content requirements for an authority hacker style affiliate site. And I actually don't love the term affiliate site. Instead, look, build a brand, build a helpful resource, and then take advantage of affiliate relationships as one monetization channel. But in any case, notes, links, and a pre PDF highlight reel with all of Perrin's top tips from this conversation are at sidehustlenation.com slash Perrin. It's P-E-R-R-I-N. And before we dive in, let me take a moment to thank today's sponsor, which is FreshBooks.com. FreshBooks is the affordable small business accounting software for side hustlers and freelancers with invoicing and time tracking built right in. When it's time to get paid, think FreshBooks. And here's the deal. Side Hustle Show listeners can get started with a 30-day free trial at FreshBooks.com slash Side Hustle. I'll be back to tell you a little bit more about FreshBooks, plus my top takeaways from this chat with Perrin after the interview. Ready? Let's do it. Most of the time, a lot of people in this space or a lot of people who find me anyway want to start an Amazon affiliate-driven site. So if you're doing that, you want to look for a couple of things. First, you want to look for a niche in which there are lots of products you can sell because you're going to be recommending stuff on Amazon. So I have a friend, for example, who's in the yoga space and the site did really well, but it ended up being difficult to monetize because there's only, you know what, like three products you can recommend in the yoga space, like yoga mats, yoga pants, and then what else, right? Yeah, maybe a block or two. Yeah, it's, it's a very low, not, not a lot of equipment involved. <laughs> right. So he ended up finding out that that was really hard to monetize because there were just not very many products. So you want stuff to recommend. It doesn't have to be stuff on Amazon. You know, there are lots of people doing affiliate marketing who are recommending weight loss programs and that sort of thing. Some of the biggest affiliate sites out there, like the Points Guy or Nerd Wallet, are writing about insurance and credit cards, etc. So it doesn't have to be Amazon Associates stuff, but whatever you're doing, your niche has to have stuff to sell if you're going to be doing affiliate stuff. And typically, even if you're doing like an ad-driven site, niches with more products will make more money with ads than those who don't have lots of products just because people are on there looking to buy stuff. So, And it could be a physical product like a yoga mat, or it could be a more intangible product like insurance or a credit card or something like that. Yeah, sure. And really what we like to lump good niches into or what we find is the 
usual trait is that they are passion lifestyle or problem niches. Passions I look at as like glorified hobbies. So something like hiking or a musical instrument or rock climbing, right? Where like people are really passionate about this thing and it's basically a hobby. Lifestyle is going to be stuff like parenting or in my case, pets. And then problems is going to be stuff like weight loss, back pain, insurance, where like someone needs to solve a problem and the easiest way to do that oftentimes is to buy something or people want that to be true. Okay. So yeah, it could be physical products or informational products or a service. There are affiliate programs for everything like helicopter rides. There's affiliate programs for it. So rule number one has to be stuff to sell. Rule number two, you have to have a way to get traffic. And again, most of my audience or people who follow me are going to be starting with SEO. And so when you're looking at SEO, and I know we're probably going to talk about keyword research, but when you're looking at SEO, you want a niche where you can compete, but where there is enough traffic available. So compete usually means that you can build enough links to compete with other sites who are ranking for the types of keywords you want to rank for. And then overall available traffic means that the market is is just big enough that if you do rank for stuff, people are going to find your site. So a good example is like, Model trains. That's a niche I looked at a long time ago. Okay. Really low competition keywords, but just not any traffic available. So you need pretty much all of those things. You need a market in which there are lots of products. You need a market in which you can compete and you need a market in which there's available traffic. And then a few tangential things to think about if you find a niche that meets those requirements are like, is it going to be easy to diversify traffic? Can I do like paid traffic or social traffic or whatever? And is it going to be easy to diversify revenue? Are the sites doing well with ads? Can I make a product? That sort of thing. But those first three things are the core of my niche selection process. Okay. So the model train thing, it checked the box. Hey, there are there are products to sell. There's a way to get traffic because the competition is low, but it's just there isn't enough volume of people interested in this to make it worth your while. Yeah. And there are niches where it meets two different requirements where like maybe there's a lot of available traffic and it's low competition, but there's just not stuff to sell, which would be like yoga. Okay. You have a metric of what you're looking for in terms of that search volume or in terms of like how are you gauging the, the competitiveness and, and I guess the, the overall market size? Sure. Yeah. The best thing to see when you're doing market research is other sites with relatively low authority. So when I think about low authority, I think like, what can I achieve in a year? If a site's out there that has like 100 links, I know I can build about 100 links in a year if I'm going slowly, right? Or the average beginner is building that much. If you see a site out there around that authority that has a lot of traffic and you can check traffic with similar web for free and you know they're doing well on the search engines, that's a really good sign. So that's the ideal scenario. But you might also run into, you know, sites where you find a low authority site and it doesn't have lots of traffic, but it has some. But then you find like 20 other sites that all have a tiny bit of traffic and they're all kind of ranking for different stuff. If you combine all of that, you know that there's overall enough traffic to make money. But really what I'm looking for most when I'm looking at market size and competition is low authority sites who have lots of traffic. So tell me about the the here pup site because that seems i don't know that seems like that would have been saturated already like there's got to be a million and one you know people who want to write a dog site because it's like 
everybody's got a dog. You know, it's like a very common, it's a very common thing. Yeah. And that's what I guessed also. Okay. But when I started looking into it, and this is one of the things that I learned about bigger markets, and that's one of the reasons why I tend to like bigger markets now more than I like nichier markets, although nichier markets are still really, really powerful, is that there are just so many questions people have, and there are so many products that there's room to compete somewhere, right? So okay. for for HearPup, it was like really obscure questions like, can dogs cry? I don't know. Someone's asking it. In fact, like 1,700 people on Google are asking that question. Can dogs cry? Let's write about it. That article was like 700 words, and I think it ended up bringing like 10,000 visitors a month when it was sort of at its peak, and it's dropped wow. from there. But Or like, can dogs eat bananas? 18,000 people a month search for that. And it's a very simple question that you can answer in 500 words. I ended up compiling a bunch and making an infographic and doing really well for that keyword too. Okay. And then also just like random products. And I didn't know this about the niche, but when I started looking out there, I found lots of little dog sites that didn't have much authority that were all getting 20, 30, 40,000 visitors a month. So I was like, hey, if these sites can do it, I certainly can. And this is using the similarweb.com tool to estimate their traffic? Yeah, there are lots of ways. I use Ahrefs, which is probably my favorite tool. It's really like a one-stop shop tool. The drawback with Ahrefs is that it's expensive. Similar Web uh, is a Chrome has a Chrome extension that you can plug in for free. Oh, cool. And then anytime you're on a website, you just click the button and and you can see total traffic and you can see the percentage of that traffic that comes from search. And Similar Web tends to have a better database than anybody else. So I use Ahrefs because it's what I used to do all my research in one place. But for beginners, I usually really recommend Similar Web. Okay. Perfect. Yeah, I'm, what I'm seeing is kind of a shift from building these super, super niche sites like Spencer's Survival, what is it, survivalknifereviews.com or something, you know, to building a site that like is an order of magnitude broader in terms of, well, now we're going to talk about outdoors, anything like outdoor survival mm -hmm. or this whole, I think John Dykstra gave the example, like if there's a magazine about this, if there's a cable channel about this topic, like those are great signs. Like there is this, this army of people who are interested in this topic versus, you know, going super, super niche. Is, is that what you're seeing as well? Yeah. There's going to be a correlation between the size of the market and how difficult it is or the breadth of your site and how difficult it is. So if you write or if you create a site that is only about dog beds, the relevance can carry you a lot further than it might if you are writing a general dog site and you have a few dog bed articles. Okay. So if you build a broader site, it usually means your ceiling is much, much higher. So if you've got a dog site and then you want to rank for every dog article, you can certainly do that, but it's going to require a lot more marketing so that the domain, your website, has enough power and authority to rank for those more general terms. But the hyper-relevant, hyper-niche sites are still a really good place to start for a lot of people because link building and marketing is the most difficult skill in SEO, and hyper-relevant sites don't need as much of that. It's kind of a trade-off. What we usually recommend is starting hyper niche with like one very good category, something where you can write about the same type of product for 50 articles, but pick a brandable domain. And then once you start making money, you can sort of slowly expand. So maybe you start with a site that's only about dog beds, but your brand is something more general about dogs like herepup.com. 
where okay. it's not a big deal it, and it won't affect you if you want to slowly expand further. Gotcha, gotcha. That makes sense. So yeah, and I'm like Shih Tzu, best Shih Tzu dog beds dot com or something. Right. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. If you travel a lot for work or for a vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. What else going into the keyword research process? So this is just kind of, a, is there a minimum volume that you're looking for for a, a primary keyword? Or is this something, hey, this is so broad, I don't really, I'm not really concerned about a primary keyword anymore. Yeah, I don't look at primary keywords Hardly at all. I look at the amalgam of all of the keywords that I might rank for. And generally, I don't pay attention to volume hardly at all. And here, Papa is going after keywords with like 10 volume, 20 volume, as long as it's not zero. I'm usually in. You tell me what's that metric again? The 10 volume, 20 volume? Yeah. So like if there's 10 monthly searches for a oh. keyword. As as long as the monthly searches aren't zero, I will usually go for the keyword if I think it's going to be profitable. And the reason for that is any keyword you go after, when you write that article, it's going to end up ranking for dozens or hundreds or sometimes even thousands of other related keywords. So the volume of one of those hundred keywords that your article ranks for really doesn't matter. A better way to judge the overall traffic an article might get if you're writing about a topic is to look at the top pages in the SERPs for that keyword. So you might Google best shit to dog beds and then look at the traffic for those pages in total so that you can say, okay, if I write about this topic, the pages that are covering it tend to get X amount of traffic. And you can do that with Ahrefs where you can plug in one URL and it'll tell you like, you know, this article, this page gets X amount of traffic. So if you're looking at dog beds, you might type in best shih tzu dog beds and you see that the top three articles are getting between maybe 1,500 and 500 visits a month. You know that's worth it because you have, you know, X RPM or whatever. So I think keyword volume and primary keywords are antiquated by now. Usually we're looking at more holistic metrics. Okay. Are you are you compiling all this into a spreadsheet or just kind of like, well, I have a, a gut feeling about this? I will compile it into a spreadsheet for sure. And keyword research is one of the things that gets more difficult the more you learn about it. So there's a lot that goes into keyword research for me now, mostly because I'm starting bigger sites that are meant to be bigger brands and more general that take a lot more marketing and grow over time. Yeah. And when you do that, you want to get the technical SEO like really solid and you start talking about stuff like silos and link structure and like site architecture. And so usually when I'm doing keyword research, it's inseparable from the plan for the whole site. 
So when I go to start a site and when I'm picking a niche, I really try to plan out everything that I'm going to be writing about. And I'm looking at the keywords first to say like, you know, is there opportunity here? And then I try to identify trends. So I might be saying, you know, I see lots of dog bed articles. The pages ranking are getting lots of traffic. It looks profitable. Can I find 20 or 30 of those so I can put them in a silo? And if the answer is yes, then I might say, okay, I know I want a dog bed silo. What might be related to dog beds? Dog stairs or dog houses, right? Or kennels or whatever. Okay. And then I'll look at that one by one and try to find, you know, related silos that I can build out. So they're really inseparable if you're going to go build like a true authority site. It's a lot easier if you're going to be like niching down in one really specific niche because you only have to do that one time. But then, yeah, you throw them all in a spreadsheet and you record the volume and usually the difficulty and then start trying to produce some content. Difficulty just based on, okay, what is the page authority, domain authority of the other sites that are in the top 10? Yeah, basically every keyword tool has a keyword difficulty metric. And we actually did a huge analysis on Authority Hacker that studied which is the most accurate. But generally for any tool, they're going to have a KD and they're going to have a range of KDs. And you just want to try to find whatever that tool says is easy. For me, if I'm starting a new site, I just set a cutoff and say like, okay, anything below this, I'll just go ahead and go for it. The thing to remember about keyword difficulty, people kind of obsess over it, I find. Is this keyword easy? Is it hard? Should I go after it? The thing to remember is that there's such low risk for just trying an article. You know, you (laughs) should just do it, right? I mean, the risk is like 40 bucks if you buy the article or like two hours of your time if you write it. If it doesn't rank, that's fine. Some other ones will. And what happens to a site is, you know, 10 or 20% of the articles end up getting most of the traffic anyway. So 80% of your articles are going to be less than perfect, but it doesn't matter in the long run. So usually I don't worry about keyword difficulty too much. I just trust the tools. I set a cutoff and I try to find easy ones. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I know we're getting we're getting down into weeds. I don't want to intimidate people too much. You know, this is a, it's a process and it's definitely a learning curve over over time. What's next? So you found a niche that you think looks good. You found a a broad topic that you think looks good. Hey, this is something that I'm interested in. Maybe it checks that passion or lifestyle box, or maybe it's a problem that you overcome in your personal life. And you say, okay, I think I could build a site around this. I think there's an unmet need in uh, in the market, and and I want to I want to fill it. So what comes next? These are planning your content, and I think that's also inseparable from keyword research these days, but. I really like to plan my sites out as much as I possibly can before I order that first article. So in my case, it's just a couple of columns for each category that I think I might want to build just in Google Sheets and then do some keyword research, plan the content category by category. And then after you've done that, and this is all going to be based on a budget, you know, how many articles can I afford or how many do I want to write myself? And then once you've got that number of articles and they're organized into categories, you can step back and take a look at the overall site and say like, okay, is this interesting? Does it work? Is it good for the user? Is it solving a problem? Is it balanced? Is there, you know, a good mix of content? Does it seem profitable? So really after keyword research or after niche selection, keyword research, site structure and planning, and then content planning, all are really modes of the next step for me. Okay, so I'm on uh, herepup.com and I see categories like health, grooming, uh, behavior, nutrition, and stuff like that. So if I was wanting to start my, you know, skiing or snow sports outdoor site, I could have gear, I could have 
discount lift ticket deals. I could have area reviews, you know, different ski areas or something like that. How many categories is too many? And that's the question. It's something that I've been thinking about and uh, reading about a lot. And it's where you get into deeper, more annoying, more technical, like silo theory. So silo is kind of synonymous with category or am I not understanding that correctly? Silo is not synonymous with category and it's a good misconception to debunk, I suppose. Okay. Silos, unique categories for silos, but silos have two other elements. One is grouping, which would be the category element. And then the other one is isolation. And that means that the only articles that your silo or the posts in a silo interact with, the internal links are each other. So a silo means you've got a category that is totally isolated from other categories on your site. So if you've got a ski gear category, it's not interacting at all with your ski resorts category. Okay. And the idea there is that you want to build relevance. So if Google calls your site and they see everything in that silo is only about ski gear, you're much more likely to rank for ski gear terms. Instead of, say, you know, having 100 articles on the site, they're all linking to each other. Then one might be, you know, about ski techniques. One might be about ski poles. You'd still be in good shape because it's all about skiing, but it starts to become a problem when you go broader. So like, say you had a winter sports category and, you know, you've got best ski poles 2017 and then, I don't know, how to build a snowman or a snowball fight championship or whatever. Like, the broader you get, the more important silos are because you start to, you know, lose relevance as you go. So when you're planning it, you want to build categories that are as relevant as possible. I would say five articles is like the minimum and maybe 150 articles is the maximum. You just want them to be related to each other in a way that really makes sense. Sorry, five articles minimum per category? Per category, yeah. Okay. That's the conventional wisdom. There's a guy named Bruce Clay who is, you know, the quote-unquote godfather of silo theory. He's been writing about it for like a decade. Okay. And he says five article minimum. I haven't tested it myself, but... Fair enough. Yeah, and then once you get over like 100, it's like, that's just unwieldy. Okay. This is actually really good to hear is to plan this out before you start the site or in the very early days of your site because I have gone through a couple rounds of this trying to just clean up the, the side hustle nation categories and you know rearrange content and do do all this stuff and it's a it's a pain in the butt to do it after the fact and trying just in the name of reorganization trying to make some archive content more easily discoverable and I'm thinking I'm getting there, but it's still like I have a long way to go and there's you know, 500 articles to sort through or even more before I deleted a whole bunch. So yeah, that's something. So say, you know, five to 10 categories or, or fewer. It doesn't really matter how many categories your site has. However, I think the most important thing when you think about site structure categories and, you know, what you're going to put in there isn't necessarily like a number that Perrin Carroll pulls out of his butt arbitrarily, it's more what makes sense for the user. So if you've got a ski site and you want to create a gear category, is there only 20 things to really write about? Maybe stick them all in one. Or do people really care about ski poles and you want to have 40 reviews? Well, then ski poles might need its own category because that's what people are looking for, right? So okay, okay. keywords and research has to guide you and you know your market kind of has to guide you. 
but in the end, you want your categories to be as useful for the user as possible. Okay. So you're kind of mapping out this content that you're that you're going to have to eventually write or get written. Do you put up a placeholder site while you're doing this process, or do you say I'm not going to launch until I have X number of articles like live and ready to go, or do I drip them out over time? Like, what does that process look like for you? Uh, it's different for me now. I don't think there's any advantage for placeholder or dripping. When I launched HerePup, I mean, my main skill is writing, so I have a little bit of an advantage. But I, for the first two months, I just wrote 60,000 words of content myself. And then as soon as those articles were done, I published them. When I launch sites now, I start with bigger budgets and I will order hundreds of articles at a time. And I've got a project manager and an editor, and I just publish them as soon as I can. So I might sit down on a weekend and publish 50 or 100 articles. I really don't think there's a big pro or con either way if you look at sites like Huffington Post they're publishing thousands a day yeah but they know they're gonna have another thousand tomorrow versus like okay now I'm not gonna post anything for a while right for sure and the big advantage I guess is that the sooner you post something the more time Google has to read it and it has to age and that sort of thing so if you've got 100 articles you can either publish them all today and they can start aging at the same time and showing up in the search engines in three months. Or you drip them out over a year and instead of you know having 100 articles in the search engines, ranking and making money in three months, you've got a few showing up every month or something, You know, 10 showing up every month. Gotcha. So that's the main advantage. Of course, you don't want to publish nothing for a long time, but the only time I've really seen that ever have a huge impact is when sites have stopped publishing for like six months or something. And hopefully at the end of six months, you've got some money coming in so you could start publishing again, you know? Okay, because that signals, hey, this site might be dead or might not be as relevant anymore. Right, or if you're really concerned about it and you don't have a ton of budget or your site's making money, we all know SEO takes more time now, you can just go update some of your existing articles. So you, you say like, okay, what's another section to add and... You type another 150 words for it That's adds value to the article and makes sense for the user, and then you just update it and maybe go ask Google to crawl it again. That works too. That's also freshness, you know, so you don't have to go order 20 more articles for a thousand bucks or whatever it is. Yeah. You can also just update your, your existing content. Where do you like to order content from these days? I use Word Agents. Word Agents is my favorite agency. I recommended them on Authority Hacker and in that community. And what I find is that Authority Hacker members have mixed reviews of Word Agents and Word Agents has mixed reviews of Authority Hacker members. <laughs> okay. So the lesson there is, is that with agencies, you really need to be a good client. And if you're a good client, you can order from pretty much anywhere. So Text Broker is a place I always recommend if you are a good client. That means if you have a good brief, if you can, if you can communicate revisions and that sort of thing, you can get great content from Text Broker. There's a spectrum of places to get content. So Word Agents is going to be middle of the road to expensive, you know, but it's very much hands-off for me, which I like, and it's a luxury that I have when I have a little bit bigger of a budget. On the other end of the spectrum, you can hire one writer for relatively cheap and sort of pay as you go, or you can just write stuff yourself. Yeah, There's a million ways to do it. I really like going with agencies these days just because... Usually you can get writing, editing, and project management for, you know, wrapped up in the same price. And the time you save editing and et cetera yourself usually makes up for the cost. 
Okay. Word agents is new to me. I'll have to check, check them out. I've done, I mean, I mean, I've done like 99 point something percent of my writing myself, but occasionally have reason to, to get some help with that. Text broker is one I've used in the past. Hire writers is one that I've used in the past. And there are a bajillion ways to do it. Chris Lee from Rank XO, who's one of my favorite writers in SEO, he has a really good system for getting articles written for five bucks on iWriter and he just edits them until they're good and he publishes hundreds of articles that way. Yeah. Yeah. Most I think for most people starting out, it's like, well, I'm either I'm probably gonna do it myself. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over three and a half million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster. And 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors. And what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So one thing that I've heard you talk about or write about is the concept of a linkable asset for a new site. What is a linkable asset? And if you can share any examples, that'd be cool. A linkable asset is just a piece of content that is good for content marketing. And in the world of SEO, that usually means it's going to get you more links. It can be anything. And because there's so many different ways to build links, you can build linkable assets in a bunch of different ways. A really easy one is going to be an infographic. So one of my favorite ways to build links is guestographics. I did an article on Backlinko that you can go read that basically outlines the process. But the idea is you create an infographic and then you email blogs in your niche and you say, hey, do you want to use this? That's a good linkable asset because it's pretty. It's not something people can easily create themselves. And it's something you can give them and they can use it on their site immediately. And they might just link back to your source. Okay. But it could be something like a tool. Tools are really popular linkable assets, uh, like a really massive guide, which is something you'd see on like, you know, Quicksprout or Backlinko. They do like lots of huge guides. It could be something that creates controversy. It could be just a better version of what's out there. So we do lots of skyscraper link building and we won't go into that in too much detail. But the idea is, you know, you find people who are linking to similar stuff and you say, hey, I have a really great resource on the same topic. Would you like to link to mine too? And so, and usually when you do that, it's just a better version than what's out there. But the idea behind a linkable asset is that it's difficult to build links to any old article. Linkable assets are content that has a little bit more effort put into it. And it's a little bit more attractive for people to link to from their blog. Okay. So if you're writing, you know, your 2017 best ski pole reviews article, like nobody wants to link to that because that's just like an affiliate post. Mm-hmm. But if you were writing, like here are the 101 must ride ski areas that every skier has to ski at before they die, like that's, you know, the linkable asset. Yeah. And also like really actionable stuff usually does well. 
so step-by-step guide for tackling your first double black diamond or whatever it is, you know? Okay. Something that usually what I like to do for linkable assets is like, okay, what, what could I create that people would want to save? Like want, want to bookmark. Even if it's out there somewhere else, someone lands on it, what, you know, like they want to bookmark. A really good example on here, pup is that big keyword, can my doggy or can doggy eat bananas that has like 18,000 people searching for it. I think here pup ranks like number three right now. I took a bunch of those similar keywords, can dogs eat bananas, can dogs eat apples, blah, 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 and created a big infographic that just had like safe foods, in moderation foods, and harmful foods. And I put them all in one infographic, and that was it. It was just a picture of the food broken into those three sections. But I knew that if people looked at that, they'd be like, oh my God, I'm never going to remember all of this. I want to save this, right? Oh, okay, okay. And so that did extraordinarily well attracted i think 20 to 30 links and has been pinned tens of thousands of times but something that's highly useful like that where like people will want to save it usually makes the best infographics or not infographics but linkable assets okay and then the rest of the posts that you're writing are is like every other post monetized in some way or is it just like this is purely because i imagine hey can dogs eat bananas like Unless there's, I don't know, it doesn't seem like a heavily monetized post unless there's just ads on the page. Yeah, there's no banana affiliate programs. Yeah. So <laughs> Here, we're going to link to Chiquita. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So one of the things that I've been getting, I've learned a lot over the years, is how to diversify revenue. And the idea that I started with was just writing affiliate articles for Amazon and not doing anything else. Now, because there's only so much you can do in most markets with affiliate content, I really try to get revenue from lots of different sources, and I usually call it a revenue stack. And I like to use that term because I like to do them one by one, so I will get affiliate content working. After that's working, I will stack ad revenue, usually like one source like AdSense. After AdSense is working, I'll stack media.net, which is a favorite ad network for me. After ads are working, I might try to create my own product and collect emails, whatever it is. Um, you know, you stack these revenue sources on so that it's not a matter of monetizing every individual article, but the site as a whole and monetizing your traffic as a whole. Usually for most sites, what that looks like for me is I'll start with a core of affiliate content, 50 articles, 100 articles, whatever it is, and then that mostly doesn't grow much over the life of the site. But then I add lots and lots of informational content, stuff that might not make as money per visitor as affiliate content, but still makes good money with ads and is easier to write. Okay. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, my mind is going back to uh, Swim University with Matt Giovanisi. He, oh, yeah. He did the uh, infographic example, too. It was like 50 ways to jump into a pool, I think. And it went viral on mm -hmm. Reddit or something, something mm -hmm. that he made himself. It's like not making him any money, but building links back to his site and getting people there for his like, well, here's the pool chemicals you need affiliate link type of stuff. Or, you know, he's selling display ads and stuff on that on that site as well, or private ads. Okay. So that makes sense. And, um, you know, what I started learning with HearPup was that ads can do really well. You know, this is when I met John Dykstra. Is it Dykstra or Dykstra? Do we know? I don't know. I said Dykstra. <laughs> okay. I'll have to ask him. I talked to him like once a week. I started talking to him and he was like, man, you got to put ads on your site. You're getting so much traffic. And started experimenting. And when I first put ads on there, I, I made like, you know, 300 bucks or something. But then if you just keep optimizing and it's not hard to do. I ended up making like $2,000 a month at one point from 
ads and it's just really good money. At that point, it was 30% of the total revenue. Wow. And what kind of traffic was that with? That was with like 170,000 a month sessions. Okay. Ads can be really good. And that's, that's one of the things we teach in our programs is you start with affiliate content. And the next thing you do after you start getting traffic is put some ads on there because ads usually don't take away from affiliate clicks. They're super low commitment. It takes like five minutes to install AdSense, you know? Yeah. And every visitor that comes to your site is going to be worth something. All right. I might play around with some of that. <laughs> okay. I don't know. Too. I don't have that near that kind of traffic for some of these smaller sites, but two grand a month is maybe conglomerized or, or aggregated. Okay. So I've built this body of content. I've, I've kind of brainstormed and built out maybe a couple of these linkable assets. I've done my outreach for those. It sounds like that's kind of where you're getting your first links for for this new site as well. I, I made this, you know, what can dogs eat infographic, or I made 50 ways to jump into a pool infographic. And now I'm reaching out to people who might be interested in that and be like, you feel free to use this on your site, just attribute it back to me. Or what does that process look like? Yeah, for Gusto Graphics, I really like a softer two-step outreach. First email is just like, hey, I created this. Do you want to see it? Oh my gosh, don't do that. I hate that. <laughs> Dear, Are right? you teaching that? I, people yeah. do that all the time. It's like, I'm not curious enough to reply to you. So yeah. <laughs> no. I actually tested it both ways like a month ago. I tested the two-step outreach and then I tested just dropping it in the first email Yeah, and seeing how people replied. My conversion rate was about double and I'm sure it's going around. I mean, like I've gotten infographic emails for people about dog infographics that just are my infographic no. <laughs> redone. So like I, I know they're out there, but the good thing about the two-step outreach is that the ask is so soft. It's like, you know, just do you want to see it? Yes or no, that's fine. And then after I send the infographic, I will offer to write a blurb like, hey, if you like this, I can write something to go along with it. And then that's what people usually really respond to. Okay. I love that you split tested this too. <laughs> yeah, man, test everything. You got to have the data. Like it was, uh, you know, a year ago where I realized I was just kind of working on intuition and that I needed to start testing everything. Okay. It's important. Yeah. But yeah, that's what you do for infographics. You don't have to do infographics. Say you've got, you know, if your niche is hardwood floors, it's going to be tough to create an exciting infographic, right? So you have to look at the different types of link building and there are core types of link building, you know, the classics that have always worked, that have always been white hat. And you just go test a couple and do some small campaigns for maybe guest posting, broken link building, skyscraper, infographics, and see what your market responds to and then just do more of that. Fair enough. We've had a link building episode or SEO for bloggers episode recently with Joseph Hogue. Oh, nice. So we'll link that up in the show notes as well. So I think there's some tactics in there you might be able to use. It's a little bit, it's a little bit tougher building links for Side Hustle Nation is easy because it's like very much personally branded. And I guess if it's, you know, if you're writing a dog site and you love dogs, like that's easier to do as well. But okay, well, I'm in, I'm in this niche only because the keyword research told me it was a good place to be. And then it's like, well, I, I don't know, I have a harder time like doing the outreach for that. Like, are you creating your own dedicated email account with a pen name for, you know, those outreach emails? Or are you just sending them all from your main email account? I do have a persona I only use it because I'm kind of in the public sphere. And I have a huge problem with copycats. Yeah. If I didn't, I probably would just email as myself. It doesn't matter. I do like yeah. to set up 
a, a separate account like Google Suite because you can send more emails and you're much less likely to be sent to spam folders and the rules are a little bit more lenient and you can have a brand of email address. You can have parent.herepup.com or whatever. Yeah. You don't necessarily need a persona to outreach to people. Like you don't have to be a personality to outreach to people. I have a friend named Mo who has ridiculous conversion rates for his campaign. So to give you an example, typical campaign for me converts at two or three percent. That means for every hundred emails I send, I'm going to get two or three links. His are like 10 or 15 percent. And the reason is it's because he sends fewer emails, but he for every site and person he emails, he starts with what's the benefit for them? I'm emailing them. What do they get out of it? And that's where he starts conversation and he converts a lot more people. Hmm. That's a really good technique. If you're not a personality, your niche isn't very exciting, you're not passionate about it. It's just to start with like benefit focused outreach. And you can do that with anything, with guest posting or infographics or broken link building. Those are sort of primed for that conversation, but it's a good place to start. Fair enough, man. Well, Perrin, this has been awesome. Again, authorityhacker.com. You can check out their authority site system. We are scratching the surface of this stuff. We're trying to bundle a half a decade worth of knowledge or more into uh, this conversation, but there is obviously a lot to learn and and such a cool business because there's a million different ways to to monetize and and ways to grow this thing so exciting stuff parent thank you so much for joining me let's wrap this thing up with your number one tip for side hustle nation yeah so i know your audience is making money a bunch of different ways and they might not want to go all in on a big branded site so i would say if you are you know going to tr- just try building a website that makes passive money you should start super duper niche. It's okay to start a site on ski poles just to try it and see if it's worth it. Because as you're learning, you don't want to be spending a bunch of time and money that you could be spending making money in other ways. So my number one tip is to, for your first site, niche down as much as you can. Fair enough, man. It's okay to start super niche. Well, we're going to see some, hopefully some ski pole sites coming out of this conversation. Yeah, shouldn't have said that. All right. Well, we'll do some, uh, we'll do the keyword research on that one. Perrin, thank you so much for joining me. We'll catch up with you soon. Take care. This edition of the Side Hustle Show is brought to you by FreshBooks.com. As your side hustle starts to grow and you begin to score more clients, you're going to want an organized and professional way to get paid. And that's where FreshBooks comes in. They know side hustlers because the whole company started as a side hustle. Now today, the award-winning cloud accounting software helps entrepreneurs like us keep our paperwork in check without spending a ton of time. And I got to tell you, it's a pretty satisfying feeling to whip up a professional-looking invoice in under a minute. And of course, it's an even better feeling when I get the notification that it's been paid. So if you haven't already, check out the freshly redesigned FreshBooks.com platform. They've gone through feature by feature to make it even more intuitive and easy to use. You can use their built-in time tracking tool to log your hours and the expense management option to organize all those receipts into legit business tax deductions. And you can do it all on the go with the FreshBooks mobile app as well. See how the all-new FreshBooks can save you time dealing with your paperwork so you can spend more time making your hustle happen. Go to freshbooks.com slash side hustle to start your 30-day free trial today. That's freshbooks.com slash side hustle and enter the side hustle show in the how did you hear about us section. All right, my top takeaways from this call with Perrin. Number one, don't skip the prep and planning. Remember Perrin's big three in niche selection were products to sell, a source of traffic, and the ability to compete for that traffic. So if you can't check those boxes with a reasonable level of confidence, probably back to the drawing board on niche selection. 
Takeaway number two, but don't let it paralyze you from taking action. There's probably no such thing as the perfect niche. It's a balancing act. And every site is going to take a ton of work to get off the ground in the form of planning, in terms of content creation, and in terms of marketing. So if you've got an idea and you think you can build a killer resource around it, go for it. That's what makes the internet better every, every year is people trying to build better resources. And takeaway number three is a strong foundation can support more building on top of it. Perrin talked about the revenue stack, a term that I love. I'm all about building those multiple streams of income. But I liked his advice of starting small on a brandable domain, right? Uh, That makes it less daunting to launch, I think. And you can always expand later. So I've actually got a free video course on putting up your first website that you can access at sidehustlewebsite.com. So check that out. Let me know what you think, sidehustlewebsite.com. And be sure to hit up sidehustlenation.com slash Perrin, P-E-R-R-I-N, to download the free PDF highlight reel from this conversation and to check out all the links and resources mentioned as well. That's it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen. And I'll catch you in the next edition of the Side Hustle Show, where you'll meet a new blogger who grows hacked his way to 6,000 subscribers and $10,000 in his first six months. You won't want to miss it. I'll see you then. Hustle on. Thanks for listening to the Side Hustle Show at www.sidehustlenation.com.